following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. In 2012, there was an anti-abortion film entitled The Silent Scream. It's a powerful film that depicts literally uh, a baby being aborted in pain with agony on its face and its mouth wide open, obviously screaming. But it was a silent scream. It was not a scream that could be heard by the doctors or the nurses that were murdering the baby. It's a powerful film, and God used it in a, in a wonderful way. But today, as we sit here this morning in comfort, there is another silent scream that is as powerful. And it is a scream of our brothers and sisters around the world who this day, as we sit here in comfort, are being persecuted for their faith, oppressed, raped, murdered, tortured, imprisoned. And they cry out. And oftentimes the church in the West doesn't hear, but even more to the point, as they cry out, it seems at times that God doesn't hear. And that's really the the issue that Job is addressing here in these first 17 verses. As he depicts for us uh, the arrogance uh, and the wickedness of, uh, of corrupt sinners, particularly those who oppress the poor and live uh, boldly against the law of God. Job began his speech here in chapter 23, describing his uh, spiritual desertion, why he was still crying out as he was. And as we saw last week, in the midst of darkness, God has given us a map and a compass, a map of his character, a compass of his character, the map of his word. And particularly, uh, we focused on God's faithfulness, God's sovereignty, and God's grace, encouraging you in midst of trial and depression to look to God and to look to him as he manifests these attributes. But in chapter 24, Job returns now to his main argument. For you remember the system. The system says that in this life, if you are blessed, you are righteous. And in this life, if you are suffering, you are wicked. And Job has argued from a number of different directions to uh, disprove this. Of course, at the end of the day, his concern is, look, I know I'm suffering, but I'm not suffering as punishment of God uh, for wickedness. So he's shown how the wicked often go through this life blessed by God. But now he comes even to a more uh, graphic depiction, not just that the wicked can be blessed, but terribly wicked people apparently can go through life unjudged, undealt with by God. So what I want to show you from uh, these verses is at times, oftentimes even in this world, uh, God defers 
executing justice on the wicked. Oftentimes in this world, God defers executing justice on the wicked. Sometimes he will do it in this world, later. Sometimes never in this age as far as we can tell. So we'll unpack this under two headings, a statement of deferred judgment and the proof of deferred judgment. So keep this in mind. What Job is proving here by the Holy Spirit is that in this life, oftentimes, God holds back, defers the execution of judgment against the wicked. Well, the statement of deferred justice is made in verse 1 with two rhetorical questions. Why are times not stored up by the Almighty? And why do those who know him not see his days? I know if you have a New King James, they make it one question, but in the Hebrew, it's two questions. And the first question is, and notice these questions are not, uh, the answer is not on uh, something that is simply rhetorical. It's saying it's not happening. It's not happening. Why are times not stored up by the Almighty? He is God Almighty. He is all-powerful. What is he doing? Times here is to be understood as times of judgment, even as it's used in the Old New Testament of, of seasons, times, and epics. Appointed times of judgment. We read in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verse 15, that Samuel had a circuit. And he would have these places, and when he would appear there, those were the places for the times of judgment as he judged Israel. But Job is asking the question, why are there not appointed times of judgment? Why is God not acting uh, at appointed times of judgment, asserting that he's not doing so? As he does then with the second question, why has God left his people ignorant? Why do those who know him not see his days? That those who know God and who know his character and know his law, why has he hidden these days of judgment? Why has he deferred the days of judgment and left us in the dark? You got the questions? It's a statement of deferred judgment. Very similar to what the Saints under the altar in the fifth seal, Revelation 6, pray. They cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? God answers that he will judge persecutors in his own time. Or as Christ has to tell the apostles and Acts chapter 1. Is this the time of the restoration of the kingdom? He must say, it's not for you to know times and epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Our God is holy and mysterious in his ways. Job's not denying the justice of God. But what he's wrestling with here is the reality that God often holds back, often defers Judgment does so for any number of reasons. He does so, as he tells Abraham, Genesis chapter 15, because the iniquity of the Canaanites had not yet reached its appointed portion, and that was to take place 430 years later. 
But when it had filled up according to God's appointment, then he exercised judgment on those people. Uh, Sometimes he uh, does it to uh, sift and try his church. And so the church will go through these times of oppression and persecution. To be tried by God, and as Job we saw last week, comes out of that furnace uh, as refined gold. God defers judgment actually for his love of his church. These are kind of themes that we look at as well in our Sunday school lesson this morning when we consider um, that the wicked sin and don't seem to suffer in this life. God does this in order to highlight the beauty of forbearance. As we read from a couple of our, our confessed and then uh, read in our assurance of pardon, uh, God's goodness, he describes in Exodus 34, is compassionate, gracious, and slow to anger. As I said, I chose Psalm 106 because what it does, it repeats one rebellious act after another, God's punishment of his people, and yet he hears their prayers, and at the end it says he still keeps his covenant. So God defers judgment for a number of reasons, but understand that actually the deferment of judgment is for our good. And when it doesn't happen in this life, we know that it shall take place at the end of the age. And that's what wants us to focus as we are reminded in the Westminster Confession, chapter 33, verse three, or section 3. Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and from the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. And so... For the brothers and sisters that are in the furnace, there is this consolation that God has given that there will be a judgment at the end of the age, regardless of how people escape that judgment now. The Lord has a book. In that book, he has marked every single thing, particularly every single thing done against his precious sheep, against his bride. And there will be a day of accounting. There will be a great assize. But he goes on, or it goes on, he will have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may ever be prepared to say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. And so on the one hand, there will be a final judgment. And we are to wait patiently on God. And on the other hand, uh, He has not let the church know. He's tested us, and he tells us to wait on him because the times and seasons belong to God and not to us. So we might live always prepared. Perhaps you're here this morning, and again, as we'll discuss in Sunday school today, you've had a life of sin, and yet you've been really blessed. And you're thinking, well, everything must be fine between me and God because I'm doing so well. And what the Holy Spirit wants you to know is, is that God might defer judgment today. But every one of us is going to stand before that judgment seat and give an answer, the thought, word, and deed. Now, if you're in Christ, then you're covered. You're covered. But if you're not in Christ, you'll be held guilty on that day of all sin. And so today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation, not waiting, not knowing when you would die or when Christ is going to come. 
But be prepared even now. Boys and girls, be prepared today. If you know that you're not resting in Christ, don't postpone that. But trust in Christ to save you from your sins. So we have this statement of deferred judgment. But then Joe goes on to prove this statement in verses 2 to 17. He proves it first from the oppression of the poor in verses uh, 2 through 12, and then from acts of gross wickedness in verses 13 to 17. So in verses 2 to 12, he proves his point with uh, the oppression of the poor, and he puts it in two categories. There is a social oppression, and there is a commercial oppression. So in 2 through 8, he deals then with the uh, social oppression, and he highlights two things in verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, the stealing of property. Some remove the landmarks they seize. The New American Standard says devour flocks. Uh, The same word can mean to pasture flocks, and that seems to fit the context better. They rob the sheep, the flocks of others, and they put them in their fields. So what they're doing is the poor cannot defend themselves. They're going and stealing uh, their uh, livestock, and they are taking away their land. It's interesting how uh, all the things he deals with here are, in fact, dealt with um, later in the law in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 19 talks about the removal of landmarks, but uh, 24 is very interesting as we look at these verses. Verse 10, when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not enter his house to take his pledge. You shall remain outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. If he's a poor man, you shall not sleep with his pledge. When the sun goes down, you shall return the pledge to him that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. It will be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he's one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who's in your land or your towns. You shall give him his wages on the day before the sun sets. You shall not pervert the justice due to an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge. But you should remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you will not go back and get it. It should be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It should be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. When you gather grapes in your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It should be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. I simply to help you understand the unity of God's law, that long before the words were revealed to us, which was a great act of grace on God's part, um, because we were made in God's image, because the law was written on our hearts, and because of the oral revelation, the living word that passed from Adam through uh, the righteous line, Uh, God's people in the day of Job before the Bible was ever written knew the law of God in so many respects, even in these social respects and commercial respects that we have before us here 
um, in Job's account. So in the first place, he says that they oppress the poor, the rich oppress the poor by taking their land and taking their livestock. And then in verse 3, he says they oppress the poor by taking away their means of livelihood or production. They drive away the donkey of the orphans. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. And so the very means by which the poor could sustain themselves while the rich take that. They arrogantly move amongst the poor, as we read in the first half of verse 4, push the needy aside from the road. And we've seen those films of you know, medieval films and, you know, the arrogant lord of the manor or the sheriff who rides down the road and his minions are pushing all the peasants out of the way. Or even now, as so many places in the world where the arrogant uh, equivalent of the KGB or other militia um, run ramshod, uh, roughshod amongst the people uh, in those lands. So there is an awful social oppression and Job then talks about, because he, he wants to get to the depth of, of the reality, the pain of deferred judgment, he talks about three consequences of deferred uh, judgment. And I'll, I'll give you three H's. Uh, hidden, hungry, and hugging. Hidden, hungry, and hugging. Uh, hugging. He says in the second half of verse 4, Uh, And verse 5, the poor of the land are made to hide themselves altogether. Well, that's just one half of the verse. He talks about that, but they are forced to hide from the oppressors. You remember Gideon, boys and girls? What was Gideon doing when the angel of the Lord appeared to him? He was in a cave, kind of thresh out some wheat for his family because the Midianites would steal their food. He had to hide. And the poor had to hide from uh, the wealthy oppressors in order to have any means at all of livelihood. But because of the oppression, second place, we see that they were hungry. Uh, Verse 5, behold, as wild donkeys in the wilderness, they go forth seeking food in their activity as bread for their children in the desert. They harvest their fodder in the field, and glean the vineyard of the wicked. So the wild donkey is out in deserted places and eking out some existence in a rocky ground. And that was the livelihood of the poor being oppressed by the wealthy. Their entire life was, was spent in their activity seeking food. Can you imagine that? That's, that was your single focus. I've got to go out and find some food for my children today. You spend all day trying to find food because of the oppression of the wicked. Um, even if the harvest the fodder in the field, that uh, they have to glean the vineyard of, of the wicked and try to get scraps for themselves. When in fact the wicked were the right or the wealthy were to make provision for the poor, and then they were hugging. They were hugging rocks. In verse 7 and 8, they spend the night naked without clothing. They have no covering against the cold. They're wet with the mountain rains and hug the rock for want of a shelter. Perhaps you've been caught in a cold rainstorm. And you know how cold and wet and miserable. What if you had to spend your whole night out there? 
And not just one night, but night after night, expelled, hiding, uh, freezing, no clothing, no covering, wet, up close to a rock, trying to get some heat uh, from it, from the sun of the day. So this is the, uh, the facts of social oppression. These are the things the, the wealthy, wicked were doing to the poor in Job's day. 4,000 years ago. And yet, it goes on today, doesn't it? This aptly describes the plight of many brothers and sisters around the world. As well as the plight just of the oppressed who are downtrodden. And of those who are being kidnapped and sold into slavery or sex trafficking. This is the reality in God's world. And the Holy Spirit wants you to understand this reality of deferred judgment. Now he goes on to show this oppression in commercial activities. In verse 9 through 12, Others snatch the orphan from the breast, either to take it for themselves or to sell it into slavery. Against the poor, they take a pledge. In other words, again, now under the guise of law, stripping them of what is theirs. And so they cause also the poor to go naked without clothing. How? By taking away the sheaves from the hungry. And it's better translated, those who carry or transport the sheaves. And so here are the laborers in the field. And they're having to carry out of the field the sheaves. are not even being paid a proper portion for what they're doing. They are within the walls or literally in the olive rows and they're seeking to produce oil and they tread the wine presses but are thirsty. So here we see commercial oppression. It reminds me of what it was like in industrial England at the beginning of the technological age or in the cities of the Northeast in our own country with child labor and sweatshops, but what it's like today in places like China and India where God is allowing people under the guise of corporate legality to press commercially the poor. And just as he described the consequence of that in social oppression, verse 12, it's not just in the country, but from the city. From the city, men groan. And the souls of the wounded cry out. But look at the conclusion. Yet God does not pay attention to folly. The word folly means unseemliness, uh, unsavoriness, wickedness. God's not paying attention. So it seems. So it seems. This is proof of the reality of deferred judgment. These things have gone on. These things go on today. And it appears that God is not paying attention. Then he moves from uh, this oppression of the poor, both socially and commercially, to simply outward gross acts of sinful wickedness. In verses 13 through 17, others, and it's interesting, all of these sentences, whether it's translated they or others, all are simply the third person plural, but you, from the context you can see the progression is taking place, and that's why it's translated. Others have been 
with those who rebel against the light. They do not want to know its ways nor abide in its paths. And now he's describing those who are spiritually blind, who love uh, the darkness of iniquity and hate the light of God's word. Of course, that's the, the nature of everyone who's not been converted by the Holy Spirit. But here he focuses again on a group of people who revel in spiritual darkness and makes a play on words then, you see. So they revel in spiritual darkness, thus they do their deeds in darkness. That's what he describes then in verses 14 through 17. The murderer rises at dawn or the dark hours right before the sun rises. And what does he do? He kills the poor and the needy. And at night he is a thief. Now, he's just killing randomly. He's, he's killing the poor. He's stealing from those who have nothing. He's simply so full of evil that he wants to murder and to steal. He does it, though, at night. And we've come to such a point now where it's done in the daylight. Men and women have no difficulty riding to the streets of our cities and simply murdering and killing. He talks about uh, the adulterer, the fornicator. The eye of the adulterer waits for twilight. Again, uh, the dark time, saying, no eye will see me. He disguises his face, moves about, even as we described in Proverbs, and commits sexual immorality. Once again, in our day, nobody hides under darkness, do they? They placard their sexual immorality before the world with a blind, arrogant pride. He, he turns to the matter of stealing. He says, in dark, they dig into houses. They, they shut themselves up by day. They, they don't know the light. They're not walking in the light. They might dig at night into houses and steal. So not just murdering and stealing in the street, but now plundering the property of of other people. And in fact, he says that um, night is to them as daytime. For the morning is the same to him as thick darkness. He's familiar with the terrors of thick darkness. Most of us don't like darkness, do we? Particularly before artificial light, people just did not want to be out on dark streets. Um, but the terror of the night, well, the wicked revel in it because that's the nature of their heart. And they rebel. In darkness. Now, I hope this has made you uncomfortable. This revelation of God's deferred judgment. Again, Job's not saying God's unjust. But he's simply chronicling the fact that we cannot judge a person's nature by God's dealings with him. This we're going to see again in Sunday school. That just because the wicked go unpunished doesn't mean there's no judgment. And just because the righteous suffer doesn't mean that they are indeed wicked. So what the Holy Spirit wants here. Now next week the other shoe drops and Job will deal with judgment. But here the Holy Spirit wants you to understand that oftentimes in this world, as it's been the experience of many of you, God defers the execution of judgment. I trust you understand and believe that. It's a statement that he proves then from both uh, social oppression, uh, oppression of the poor, and gross acts of wickedness. There are four important lessons then that we can 
walk away from this. Uh, And the first is we need to recognize the reality. We need to listen to the silent scream. And we need to speak. We need to speak in the first place in prayer. It's one of the reasons why in our prayer meeting and even in corporate worship, you will often with us and hear us lead you in imprecatory prayers. At least 10% of the Psalter is in precatory prayers. It's not praying because I've personally been offended. No, it's praying because of God's honor and because of brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to plead with God to destroy the persecutors of his people, to cry out for them to God, to join our voices with their voices to God, to say with the saints under the altar, and it's perfectly fine to say to God, How long? How long? Why are you deferring judgment? We must accept the answer, but we may ask the question. But we must also cry out for them in our personal capacities, according to our gifts, times, and and occasions. We must speak for them in the social and civil sphere as well. Not the church called to do this, but we, as brothers and sisters of them, are called to speak out. Just as we've spoken out for the innocent children being aborted, we must speak out culturally and politically for the oppressed. And this would include not just Christians. The tragedy today of kidnapping and selling people into slavery and sex trafficking, we need to plead in prayer for these as well and cry out on their behalf. We must, as Solomon teaches us, become their voices. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. May the very reality of deferred judgment make this heavy on our hearts. Second, we sit here and we're somewhat appalled by the behavior of the wealthy oppressors and the gross sinners. You know, we're like the, you hear this time and again, Somebody commits some horrendous crime and neighbors say, well, he was such a good person. I never really would suspect him to do something like this. Listen, I want you to understand that every one of us in his native condition coming forth from the mother's womb is capable of the grossest, most horrendous acts of violence and perversion as anybody in the world. And if before you were in Christ, you did not fall into those things, it was only by the restraining grace of God. It's only the restraining grace of God that saves a culture. And now what's frightening today is that God seems to have lifted his hand in the West. He's allowing these things to go forth with great rapidity. But listen to me. This is the nature of your heart this morning if you're not a Christian. It's simply how it broke out in the lives of some people. You know your thoughts. You know, wicked dreams and perversions. You know, things you don't dare do because you would be embarrassed or you're afraid that you might yet get arrested. This is who we are by nature. The Spirit wants you to see that this is is what natural man is. It's like those horror movies where a person looks really until suddenly it's stripped away and they're a monster. Apart from Christ, we all monsters. That brings to the third lesson. All the glory 
the grace of God. I read 1 Corinthians 6. It talks about commercial sin, depriving brothers and sisters legally, trying to get away with it. And then all of these acts of wickedness, gross sin. But then the conclusion in verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You see, if we're not this type of person today, it is because of this glorious grace of God that regenerated us, set us aside immediately to God Pardon all of our sins and constitute us legally righteous in the sight of Christ. Is that not beautiful? Because if God has not done that for you, then you are in that wicked category, the ugly monster. And you're under God's judgment, though it may be deferred now. But you see, there's always hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a pretty horrendous list, isn't it? And yet... Those people who practice those things, who would not inherit kingdom of heaven because they practice those things, have been converted. And you've been converted. You praise God. The fourth lesson is there's no perfect justice in this life, so don't expect it. You must live in patience, wait on the Lord. You're not going to always be vindicated. And the wicked are not always going to be judged now. But as we read from our confession of faith, There's a day, there's a day when all of God's saints will be glorified and vindicated and all the oppressors and godless are going to be judged by our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. And so with confidence, we can wait for that day. Let us pray. Oh, glorious, holy God, we thank you for this revelation. As uncomfortable as it is to us, Lord, that you allow such monsters to live and to prevail on the earth, that it's according to your divine plan, and that you will execute justice. Lord, we do plead this day for those who are under the persecutors and the oppressors. We ask, Lord, that you will destroy the oppressors if you do not convert them, and that you will sustain the saints, Lord, in the midst of all of their trials. And we thank you for the glorious grace that belongs to us in Christ Jesus. And we pray if there's anyone here this morning who's not yet come to Christ in repentance and faith, that even these words used by your spirit, young or old, bring them right now to rest in Christ alone for salvation. In him whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.